You're listening to SequelCast 2 and Friends, a proud part of the Greenlit Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to Sierra Quest 2 Adventure Game is Human, an exploration of Sierra's graphic adventures from Mission Asteroid all the way to Gabriel Knight 3, Blood of the Sacred, Blood of the Damned. I'm your host, Matt Bradley Shergi. With me is Thrasher. You better bow. And uh, this time around, we are talking about high-res adventure number four. Uh, ironically, their fifth high-res adventure games, because Asteroid <laughs> was a uh, zero. Ulysses and the Golden Fleece. This was designed by Bob Davis and Ken Williams. And as we were talking about before the show, this one feels the least like a Sierra game so far. Yeah, like it, it feels it feels like it feels like another studio trying to rip off what C- Sierra had done up to this point. I mean, so so Wizard and the Princess, people call that King's Quest Zero because it technically takes place in the same land as King's Quest Five, I, I think, or, or something along those lines. And that one, you know, Roberta Williams used fairy tale tropes. In in this in this one, Ulysses and the Golden Fleece, it uses tropes from uh, Greek and Roman mythology. And and if you know that mythology, I mean, there's some puzzles that you can only really solve if you know that mythology. And I do appreciate that. Uh, but as we we talked about uh, both the Wizard of the Princess and uh, Cranston Manor, how they sort of feel feel bigger than the earlier uh, Sierra High-Res adventures. This one doesn't feel bigger. This one feels bloated. There's a lot in yeah. this adventure that I would I can best call busy work or time filler. Not just that. Um, doesn't it seem like every single game we've talked about so far, with the exception of Mystery House and Mission Asteroid, but at least Cranston Manor and Wizard and the Princess, I swear it's that same graphic on the opening screen where you're on a street and there's <laughs> buildings yeah, to buildings. either side. It like starts the same way. Maybe that was their trademark they were trying to do or something. And also, much like Mission Asteroid, a good portion of the adventure is just getting your stuff ready before you leave on the actual adventure. Oh, and you, you had better prepare properly. And you had better bow. Yeah. <laughs> so this, uh, I, I dug up, uh, using my research, PC Magazine. From 1984, March 20th issue, had a uh, review of Ulysses and the Golden Fleece. So, I mean, this is a review from the actual time the game came out. Nice. And they, uh, I mean, this is this is weird. This is a quote from the co-creator of the game, Bob Davis. Says, a good adventurer working 24 hours a day would need a couple of weeks to recapture the fleece which means the game would likely remain on your actively played shelf for the better part of a year. Mm. That seems like it's stretching it a bit. Well, there's so many things you have to do in the beginning of this game before you go on a quest that could screw you over if you didn't do them. I could see a lot, and so many things where you have to figure out a precise sequence, I could totally see people having to go back, and each time you go back, just adding a week to your playtime. Right, or maybe, you know, you kept things on post-it notes and the post-it notes are thrown away and you don't remember. Or some of these, you know, there's a maze, you go the wrong direction, now you're screwed. Well, like, looking at this, like, even even the manual 
has two pages, two blank pages labeled notes. You will need those blank pages. Yeah, it's funny. Even like Nintendo games and stuff had sections in the back of the manual for notes. I never knew anyone that used those. Like it, the the paper was kind of glossy. It was tough to write on to begin with. And I, I used a notebook maybe to put passwords in or to, to take notes. But I never would. I didn't want to desecrate the instruction manual. I think I, I did that twice, I think. I think the first time was for Quest for Glory 2, I think it was. Whichever one was in the desert. Uh and then the other would be uh, for Loom, the LucasArts game, because that's how you filled out your spellbook. Well, sure. I think in Loom that was a pretty clever integration. And yeah, you have to know the music notes. Choice. The conscious design choice. Well put. Yes. Uh, but you're right. I mean, quite quite a lot at the beginning of this game. In fact, if you're watching like a playthrough on YouTube, it feels like nearly half of it or at least a third. You're, you're just going to the store and buying shit that you need. But you can't just go to the store and buy stuff. You gotta meet the king first and bow. <laughs> not that you really, not that you really know that. But this is one of the, and we've talked about this for other with with other games. Is that there's some some basic setup in the manual, um, and and we you know we kind of get that here. You gotta you know you are Ulysses. You gotta talk to the king. Uh, but there there's some this drive this drives me absolutely crazy. So there is a poem uh, in the manual, and that poem reads as follows. Neptune's potion, Pluto's dust, guard ancient maps to avoid fury's gusts. Dragons and gems, classical Greece, Ulysses reborn to capture the fleece. So there are a couple of very obtuse puzzles in this game. The manual, that poem tells you how to defeat those puzzles. Wait, it, it said ancient Greece, but isn't Pluto the Roman name? Exactly. And I believe, isn't the game itself, isn't he referred to as Hades? <laughs> I think you're probably right. So it kind of assumes you know that those those two names refer to a, generally the same god. I always prefer the Greek names myself. Yeah, there, there's a certain atmosphere uh, to them. But yeah, like so so that poem tells you how to uh, how to solve some obscure some some of the most obtuse puzzles in the game, and I certainly hope you have that potion and that dust. But then uh, on the page after that, there's like a little flavor text about how like how you can how you can better play the game, such as by taking notes and creating your own map. And creating your own map can be kind of fun. But there's an example map on that page. That map is not an accurate representation of the beginning of the game. So if you try to follow that eh. map, you're going to screw yourself over. It's funny. I mean, also the beginning of this, how you're expected to. To go to the king, and the king gives you the quest. I mean, that's literally what they do in the in the first King's Quest game. Another thing that drives me crazy is I kind of wish that map was accurate because, like, it has oh pterodactyl nest. I want to see a pterodactyl. Mm -hmm. I want to see the game that map goes to. Right. Uh, I would, you know, just thinking about this game overall. It has graphics in every screen, as uh, Sierra did with their graphic adventures, hence the name, um, and. The graphics, I think, in this are are not as good as in Cranston Manor. You have those junky kind of smiley faces. It feels like they might have reused artwork or something from Mission Asteroid or, or in some of these. It's a throwback to to Wizard and Princess. Wizard and Princess, very good. Right. It's impressive at the time, but this is this looks like it's it's moving back to rely on older technology. It does feel like a step back from Cranston Manor because that one I thought was pretty delightful, and this one is. 
not just bloated, but it's like who wants to who wants to play a game and be like, I'm going to go to the store and buy wood. That's a puzzle. <laughs> it's well, yeah. It's like like when you when so you so much busy work. Well, yeah, and like and just so many. Are you trying to do this? And like that just that seems like it's just there to make you second guess yourself and screw yourself over because you go to the castle. And, you know, the guard won't let you pass unless you say that you have an appointment with the king. The guard lets you pass, letting you know you better bow. So the moment you see the king on the screen, you better type in bow or else the king will throw you out. That's one thing I was delightful. I did find a fact that did list, like, the consequences of not doing certain things. Oh, that's funny. Which, which, you know, I was very very glad. Apparently, if you don't say you have an appointment and just hang around, the guard will kick you out of that screen. Huh. But, but, you know, the king says, I need you to retrieve the fleece. Here's a bag of silver and a bag of gold, uh, and I've given you a ship. Get supplies, hire a crew, and do that. So you go to the... you go to the. So I kind of liked in Wizard and Princess the buying stuff mechanic, and I loved that in Cranston Manor, it was, er, and, like, free lantern for adventurers. But in uh, but in this game, you just go to the, the shop, and if you look at the sign... The sign like says, you know, pick any seven items for one bag of silver. <laughs> and and in those earlier games like Wizard and Princess, you know, it's kind of charming. Like there's one or two things you get in the store, but having to get seven things, like And you gotta get and, the seven it, right things. Uh yeah, which is cheap. Um and, and you can't do something like buy all or get all. I used to use that as a shortcut playing like Zork and some of the old Infocom stuff. It, the the text parser, which was already bad in Mystery House, it, it's bad in, in all of these games, to be quite honest, all these high-res adventure games. And half the time you're just fighting the parser, trying to think of what pidgin English then you're typing in to get it to recognize what you're doing. It's, um, it, it is part of playing these old games, but it's also maddening, and it's something they get a bit better when we get to the King's Quest, some of the other games that have um, more advanced text parsers or have, have a bit of intelligence to it. And of course, and, and I sort of like this, if only because it's a callback. One of the items is a lantern, but that's the item you don't want to buy. And like, isn't the lantern like the core item you need to solve like one of the first puzzles in Zork? You find your way to the, the caves, and if you don't have a lantern, like what, the, you get eaten by a Gru or something. Well, not only that, like all of the previous Sierra high-rise adventures, with the exception of Mission Asteroid, at some point you need a light source. I mean, even consider like the the very first Adventure game, I believe, was Colossal Cave, based on the the programmer's experience as a, you know, cave spelunker. I don't know what you'd call it. He would go into caves as hobbies and like lanterns. It's just such a, I don't know. If I was doing a quest, the first thing I'd want to do is get a lantern. If it's set in in older times or if it's modern times, I'd get a flashlight. It just seems like you're trolling the player. In a sense, yeah, and it's not the only time in the game I, I felt this way. <laughs> and this is, and this is just. Uh, there's also there's just some things in the game that feel like they were weird stopgap solutions to things that didn't need to be problems. Because after you buy your equipment, you got to go to the the tavern to hire your crew. But on the way to the tavern, there's a single. Now, mind you, you have a bag full of gold coins, but in the alley going to the tavern, there's a single gold coin. Because you'll need one later, so you pick that up. Well, why can't you have some leftover gold after you buy your crew? And the thing that drives me crazy about the crew is like, you know, a bunch of burly sailors are here. Do you think one of them is Hercules? Well, that doesn't matter. No, and and, I mean, you you talk about using like this Greek mythology milieu, 
Uh, or are you going? I'm sure you mispronounced that, French listeners. Um, no, no, you, it's milieu. Milieu, okay. Um, I was only raised learning Spanish and English, and I never took French. Perhaps I should to read all those great film uh, magazines in French. Okay, here's du cinema. Anyhow, stupid brain, wake up. Okay, so with uh, you have all this stuff with this game, and like it has the Greek setting with the mythology, and it says Hercules is there, or maybe Hercules could help you on your quest, or with a puzzle, that'd be kind of fun. Nope. It's, it's just a throwaway line. And like, Which you is know, a shame, because so much yes. of this game is a, is, is, a, is a remix and mishmash of Greek mythology, because it's Jason who goes after the Golden Fleece, uh, but you are Ulysses. Uh, and like, I think, oh, Hercules, that's a fun crossover, so I assumed there would be a puzzle later on, like, Order Hercules to lift the rock, but no, that's yes. none of that. Or, or have them, you know, fight Hades to so you can get past them. Yeah, no, nothing like that. You have, um, I mean, there are references in here. You have skeletons later on in the game that is like a Jason and the Argonauts reference to the movie. I would say. Oh yeah, um, classic Harryhausen skeletons. And later on, you know, you see a Cyclops, which is something from the uh, the Odyssey. Um, but the the Cyclops is like, this looks so pathetic. And like, I, I don't know, like, it's not like you're expecting great artwork in these games. But I think coming off of the last one, we talked about Cranston Manor that had a higher degree of competency. And you really put it best. It is a step backwards. But not well, only it, that, I think it's like some of these screens are just so bad. It's embarrassing. I would almost rather. No, I'd, fuck it. I'll say it. I'd rather have text a pure text adventure game with more descriptions if you're going to have graphics like this. Well, and, and that, that speaks to something that, that this is a, a, some, a problem that's come up a, a few times where there's more text they want to present to you that will fit on the text part of the screen. And so like at, as, as a result, you'll get like two screens, two narrow bits worth of text uh, and it'll, and it'll move past the first one so quick. You might not have time to make note of something you need. Right, and if the text goes on, if you type in like incorrect things in the parser too much, it just doesn't show the graphics on the screen for a second. And sometimes the clues are in the graphics too. It's not always in the descriptions or so. It's almost like haikus or something, right? You can't yeah, well, like completely it, make sense of what they're saying. Well, like in um, Mystery Manor, uh, I, I would presume I couldn't find a, I couldn't find uh, anything that confirmed or denied this, but I would presume the art is art by Ken Williams that they scanned. Uh, yeah, I, I presume it'd be done that, I don't know who did the art specifically, but it seems to be done in that same manner. Um, but it's like, you know, he's he's not a visual, for all of his talents, he is not a visual artist. And at this point, I, I wish more care was being taken as far as how things look. And and there, there was such a leap forward with Cranston Manor. Uh, it, it is, that makes it, it makes Cranston Manor seem more like an accident uh, than on purpose. That's <laughs> a bit mean but it's also accurate i think you're right like this had this come out after uh wizard and the princess it would have made more sense you know the progression of that to cranston manor but this it doesn't it doesn't even it's not even the small step back it's a huge step back and in in some ways this is maybe the most disappointing game we've covered so far yeah. oh and just another whole a whole unnecessary thing so again you want to do a whole quest on the golden a golden fleece you will need a magic sword later on you don't know you will but to get the magic sword 
And apparently you can do this before even accepting the quest from the king. You've got to leave the town and go through this forest to pick up a chest you can't open, which later you will have to put down so you don't get robbed in an alley and then pick up later. And that <laughs> chest has the magic sword in it. But again, it's like, how would you know you even need that? And how would you know that you got to wander off into the wilderness to find it? It just seems like the cruelest of trial and error puzzles. Sure. It's just... It's not uh, even mentioned in the poem. Right. And that poem gives you the hints to a lot of the tricky stuff later on. It's... I mean, geez. I mean, I, I do like that it, you, if you know a lot about mythology, or Greek mythology in particular it'll help you in this game, right? You have things that are kind of like uh, the, oh, I can't think of the original myth, but the, you know, the guy makes wings for himself and flies. Oh, yeah, Daedalus and Icarus. Thank you, Daedalus and Icarus. Uh, the Minotaur, stuff like that. You know, you get, uh, as I mentioned, you have the, the Cyclops, which is from the Odyssey. You have the Pegasus, right, which is from there. Um, I was shocked there was no Minotaur in here, but you do get the Sirens. You do get the sirens, right? Which is just, uh, that's one of my favorite, um, you know, passages from, I believe that's from the Odyssey, isn't it? Or is it? From uh, the I believe Ill? so. Yeah. Uh, you know, what a, what a fantastic myth. And I just wish the game was, was good enough to, to, uh, do a better job. You have such a great treasure chest of the tools to use if you're using Greek mythology to base your game off of. And then this is what you do with it. You, you have a huge maze that's the ocean. That's boring as hell. This is yeah. after the huge maze that was the forest that has the chest in it. Woof. Yeah. It's. <laughs> we, we're skipping over huge parts of the game because so m much of this game are endless mazes and kind of like dickering around. <laughs> to be fair, the, all these games we've talked about have mazes to some degree, but here it feels especially like, like dicking around because. Well, it feels like filler material. It does feel like filler material and perhaps. Perhaps it was. I don't know. Maybe they had a formula that you needed X amount of rooms in a game to make it be worth charging, I don't know, $40 or whatever it was for it. What is so weird, because this was before, like, really a, what, I, what I would call, like, the, the like, a, a sort of a game bloat. Because, like, now there, there's a real problem with a lot of, like, major games where, like, there's this pressure to make it as long as possible. But yeah. as a result, yeah. at some point you hit a threshold where you're just wasting the player's time. And I feel like this is a precursor to that. Like I right. said, it's not I mean, bigger, a, a it's not real more expansive. It's just bloated. Yeah, I mean, a really bad example that I can think of is uh, the game's not so recent anymore. But Dragon Age Inquisition, the third main game in the series, once you start getting on the quest, oh, to advance to this next uh, area of the game, you have to you have to get X amount of points from doing this many side quests. Ugh. And the side quests are almost. They're not quite as bad as like some of the old school MMO quest where it's like bring back uh, ten squirrel pelts, but they're not so far removed from that either. Like it's stuff that doesn't integrate well with the story, and it just feels like okay, you're making me do busy work. Why not make me explore it and do it in my own time? At least with an Assassin's Creed, they drop you like in a big world, and you can start exploring right away. So I. Uh... I, uh, so I mentioned like the that, that single coin in the alley, which you use to bribe the guard at the pier a little later. I'm mm -hmm. not sure why you need to bribe the guard exactly, because the king gave you a boat. Oh, hi. I was just shoveling more red-hot takes into the old Hardcore Gaming 101 opinion furnace. 
Shaq-Fu has some redeeming qualities. There's a lot of video game podcasts out there, but only HG101 has the code Jones to objectively, definitively, scientifically rank the top games of all time. No, it's definitely pronounced Co Jones. HG101's Top Games, twice a week, every week, right here on Greenlit. Hey everybody, this is Andrew from Superhero Stuff You Should Know, and we are proud to be the latest addition to the Greenlit Podcast Network. If you're a superhero fan, our show will put your knowledge to the test. Did you know Tim Burton almost made a Batman musical? Or how Superman almost had a love story with his own cousin? That's disgusting. But it's true. We cover it all, mixing clips with commentary, sketches, and impersonations. So tune in to Superhero Stuff You Should Know, available on iTunes, Spotify, and YouTube, and everywhere you get your podcasts. But apparently right. you still need to bribe the guard. I guess he just likes taking graft. And, and again, that that seems like just such a weird... Like that, that single coin feels like a patch to solve a problem the game didn't need to have. But like, so there, one of the cooler puzzles is the puzzle where you're on top of a cliff and you need to get down. The way you get down is you use feathers, wax, and other things you have to mm. make wings, just like, uh, just like Icar- Daedalus made for Icarus. And that's how you fly down. And that's, that's really cool. If you know your mythology, you can, you can follow that. But the way you get feathers is when you first start sailing on your boat, arbitrarily, a condor hits your ship and dies. <laughs> and you have to pick up the condor. Yeah, like you you could totally have gotten and it's just such like a weird and you have to you have to specifically pluck it later too. And it just and it just seems like that's such a weird way to force those feathers on you when you could have had like a, a, a feather pillow you could have picked up as camping gear. Or like there seems like so many more organic ways the feathers could have been introduced. Or maybe you when the crew gets hungry, maybe you shoot down a bird and pluck it so that they can eat the meat of the bird and you keep the feathers. Yeah, or maybe uh, you know, the condor is, is circling the ship and one of the things you bought happened to be, you know, kind of like a trail mix thing, and maybe you put that on the boat and the, the condor comes to eat that, then you can capture him. There, yeah, there's or, a lot or if if yeah. one of your crewmen are, are, is Hercules, another one could be Ajax, the legendary Greek archer who could have shot down the bird. Right. Um, don't be silly, Thrasher. Don't don't use try don't use that much mythology in a Greek <laughs> mythology game. <laughs> it's it's almost like they're even the setting is kind of an afterthought. I mean, yes, you have um I mean come to think of it, Neptune and Pegasus are I believe both in King's Quest 2, but re- regardless, you know, you do have some of the Greek gods in here, and uh, I, you have, like, the, the classic kind of puzzles, say the secret word to get past. But it's just also, damn, going through the motions uninspired. I don't know if they were, like, on a tight deadline when doing this one, but it, it, it's just disappointing. There's so much you could do with Greek mythology, so much, and, and this is what you do with it. So a few, a few other things, and like, like, and and again, you need the manual to know this, but like when when Poseidon comes out of the ocean, you just pour a potion bottle into the ocean and he goes away. Which so it's not necessarily <laughs> a thrilling confrontation, but only in the poem in the manual would you know. Oh, a potion's associated with uh, Neptune. Same same thing. Like when you face uh, the god Hades in the cavern, you throw some arbitrary magical dust you picked up a few screens earlier at him, and that banishes him. Um, I do okay. So I do. I've had a lot of harsh words for this game. There is one part of this game I thought was absolutely brilliant. Oh, so. Yeah. 
when you sail past the sirens, you know, you have you have the men put wax in their ears, you have them tie you to the mast so that you can hear the so that you can hear the sirens, just like in just like you know in the mythology. But in here, you hear the siren song, and the siren song actually matters. The siren song is a poem. The poem mm. is as follows: Many search, but none will find. Priceless treasures left behind. Prisons steep, the keepers cruel, they built their key of sepatool. And which is which is uh, I I tried to find a source for that. I think that is just a made up word because we all know how fond Sierra is of magic words. <laughs> yes. And that's a legitimate clue because at one point you eventually get to an unclimbable cliff, a cliff face. Well, it's just like strange enough Arabian Nights. You need a magic word to open it. What is the key? The word sepatool. Yep, one of the last puzzles in the game. That is goddamn brilliant, and I, I uh, that is that is so brilliant. I am going to steal that for the Good. tabletop game I'm running online for some friends right now. No, I that, that makes a lot of sense. I think it's you're given a poem, but like the hint isn't quite what you think it is, and yet it it pays to you know write write everything down, thinking you might use it later. And I could imagine someone playing the game for the first time and, and realizing that's the solution and be like, Oh, I know what it, I mean, that's one of the most fun things about these adventure games, right? Is that you're playing them and you're stuck on a part and the stuck part can be kind of boring. But then when you figure out what the solution is, you feel like a genius and I, ideally in a good game, you're kind of led from puzzle to puzzle. Not, not that they're easy, but there's some kind of logic going on. Oh, and actually, speaking of logic, so this was this was something that I was pleased with, and it might be worth doing some research. For all we know, this could be the first hint guide. But while digging around some more information on this game and trying to find PDFs of the manual, I found an independently published adventure tips and solutions for Ulysses and the Golden Fleece, provided by the Tips Organization, a publisher called Tips that I'm going to keep looking these these people up because uh, yeah. they presumably wrote other other uh other hint guides and what's really fascinating is kind of the the the, the way this book is formatted um because uh you know it, it, it even begins by giving credit to uh to sierra online which is pretty cool um and it has a little history of uh like a half page history of the adventure games and it starts with just some like general hints, some things you might want to know playing the game. Uh, but then it has a, a little later on, it has a list of all the proper nouns that the text parser will respond to. Wow. Uh, and it's a long list. Include, oh, and, and it's divided up into nouns and verbs. And again, very, very in-depth. Um, and instead of just linearly telling you what to do it has uh a two-page index that just have the that just uh that is just the different environments so like the town the island of storms the sea and it just has a list of of things that you can't overcome and it tells you what page of the hint book to look to or what solution of the hint book to look to to find the solution and to avoid spoilers uh, rather interestingly enough, the solutions are written in code. Okay, that's um, that's a bit unusual. You know, I I recall some of the guides would have, uh, you'd have to put on these special kind of three D glasses to see what the 
walk through was what the answers were to the hints or some of them they would give you simple like kind of obtuse hints and then you get more specific hints as you'd read on but to do it in a code i mean they really put a lot of work behind that guide you were looking at well and there's one of the last detail uh there are four pages of maps of the different environments and it's just like each location is like a little octagon with a number that i think corresponds to some part of the guide uh, and arrows and, and like links that show how they interact and notes about is if you go this direction, is that one way? Does something block your path? It's a really comprehensive map. And about, it's really fascinating yeah. to see that geography just sort of laid out. Did it seem like, do they have any fun kind of illustrations in there of stuff you encounter in the game? No, none. There's no, aside from the map, there are no images whatsoever. In fact, it looks like this was typed, this was either typed on a typewriter or printed with an early dot matrix printer and then photocopied into leafs uh, for the manual. I mean, this this hmm. was definitely a labor of love for whoever put it out. I'm going to try to keep tabs on this tips group and see if they crop up again for any of our future installments. I mean, I could be wrong, but I believe uh, Sierra or online systems, I think they were known at the time, uh, it did have some kind of hint guide thing going on as an additional source of revenue. But also, I, I do remember, I mean, this is a bit after the time period we're talking about, certainly in the late 80s or early 90s, you had these, these books that would sell for like uh, $20 that would be like adventure hints or RPG hints, and it would just be walkthroughs for popular RPGs or adventure games at the time. So I wonder if they had those for some of these old Sierra games where they were one of many uh, solutions given in these books. Yeah, so I am going to, I am going to, uh, to try to keep, keep, I'm, I'm going to, between now and our next episode, I'm going to try to do some more inform, uh, research on tips and see if I, see if I can find any other guides they may have done. But that was just a fascinating artifact to turn up a, a hint guide, a published hint guide from this, this early on in the world of adventure gaming. Definitely. I mean, that must have been pretty unusual. And uh, there are those stories of Mystery House and things where I think for the phone number, they just listed their home phone number. And they, Roberta Williams would get calls at like two in the morning. Asking, yeah, they had a, they had a uh, note in future manuals yes. like, you know, call this number only during reasonable uh, West Coast <laughs> business hours. God, I can't. It's just that's a different time to be sure. I mean, I, I would not recommend Ulysses and the Golden Fleece. I think you can, if you're a completist, sure, play it. You know, if you're a fan of Greek mythology, you might get a thing here and there. But this this is not one of the better ones. You play Cranston Manor instead, or even Mystery House. Yeah, this this game, this game was, was, uh, was frustrating. And uh, it's, I, I would say this is probably... I can't I can't say it's mediocre because a lot of effort clearly went into it. But I think this probably is this is the first, I would say, bad game we've reviewed uh for this podcast. I mean, I appreciate I think, what it's yeah. trying to do. I just I wish it was more reliant on your knowledge of Greek mythology and less wandering around in mazes you have no idea that you should even be in. I found a pretty amusing uh blog kind of reviewing a lot of these old games called data driven gamer and they happen to have covered ulysses and the golden fleece uh just in november of 2019 so fairly recently 
And the first sentence, I think, says it all. Ulysses and the Golden Fleece is a cruel game, even by Sierra's standards. Mm. Numerous points of no return. The worst maze I've ever seen in my life, set in an ocean <laughs> where bread crumbing is impossible. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's a good point. What do you, when he says bread crumbing, what he means there is, you know, you could... You could sometimes like drop little items on the ground, and that would give you a point of reference as to where you've been. And yeah, because if you go back and you see that item, then you know you've gone back around. Right, and uh, yeah, in the ocean, I never thought about that, but he's right. <laughs> like, it's the ocean, dude. Like, you can't <laughs> do that much. You drive yourself crazy trying to map stuff like that. So yeah, I mean, we're covering this for completionist sake, but listeners, um, play the game. If I, I suppose you're curious, it's not that hard to find, but eh, not one of the better ones we've done, certainly. So now we move on to uh, what you're playing, if memory serves. It's been a while since we did a normal episode of this, because last episode we had on the uh, the author of that great game this, of this year adventure. Oh, yeah. Which was... A lot of fun to... I'm going to look up his name. I'm embarrassed. I don't remember what it is. <laughs> for shame, Matthew. For shame. So, so why don't you talk about a game you've been playing recently? All right. So I, I am playing a game. This this combined... It is a video game, but it, it's a video game that really plays to my love of uh, my love of board games. So I'm uh, playing the 2018 release from Focus Home Interactive Space Hulk Tactics. And this name might be familiar to some of you. Uh, Space Hulk was originally a uh, a board game published by Games Workshop in 1989. Uh, it is a it is a board game set in the Warhammer 40,000 universe. Which, you know, full full disclosure, I have written for Rogue Trader, Death Watch, uh, and Wrath and Glory, three tabletop games that are set in the same universe. Um, and this is a this is a uh, very literal video game adaptation of the board game to the point that when you do things in the game, it'll actually show you dice roll results uh, related to how your success and failure have been determined. Um, and so it's, so in that sense, it is a very faithful adaptation of the game, but it incorporates a lot of the additional material that was published in white dwarf magazine or introduced in other editions of the board game. The board game has had several editions uh, and both, both official and unofficial expansions over time. Uh, and the whole way the game works is you are, you control a squad of space Marine uh, terminators and you go into a derelict spaceship and you hunt down alien monsters and try to accomplish mission goals. Uh, and it's all turn-based. I'm glad they kept, I'm glad they, they kept the turn-based things. There's a lot of strategic thought. Um, and what's really neat about the game is you have to make sacrifices uh in many many of the scenarios the best way to achieve victory is to let certain of your marines die uh to because you know to, if only to slow down the advance of the monsters the gene stealers the aliens you're fighting so i'm glad you mentioned scenarios because i have a question on that i think i did pick up this game on some like humble bundle or humble bundle or steam sale oh yeah uh, and uh, first off, I, I just want to say Sierra Adventure, that episode we did last, the, the author of that book is Sean Mills. Please check out that book. Uh, very good if you're a fan of this podcast or any adventure games, really. Um, really good read of game history. But but uh, back to your thing. 
is there like a single player campaign with a storyline going through it? Or are you just picking the same kind of scenarios you can play through in the physical version of the board game where there's more standalone? Oh, no, there, there is, there actually is a, is a, a, a single player narrative. Uh, uh, you, you, as the commander of, of these terminators, you have like a, you have a dark past where another squad under your command died a hundred years ago. And so you're trying to sort of redeem yourself with these suicide missions. Um, but, the way the way it works is um, you have like a map of the uh, derelict and you move through it. And as you move through it, the odds that you will encounter a gene stealers increases. And sometimes gene stealers are already on the map. You can choose to go around them. You can choose to fight them. Or in some cases, you can choose to leave a Marine behind to deal with them while you continue on your way. Um and there will be certain choices to make as you go through the map. You can unlock new sections of the map as you go through. And certain and at certain times, there are missions you have to complete on the map to advance the story. And the plot, such as it is, all involves you're initially there on the derelict to try to deal with it before it crashes into an Imperial factory planet. Uh, but then the Inquisition shows up, and the Inquisition starts trying to manipulate you into performing other tasks on the space Hulk. And so tension between the space Marines and the inquisition becomes a bigger part of the game uh, as it goes on. And as it goes on, you can earn rewards that you upgrade your squad. You can pick up additional Marines. Uh, there, there's a, there's a lot of stuff to chew through, especially if you're a fan uh, of Warhammer 40,000. But one thing I do, do want to bring up because the, this adaptation of the board game handles it very well. The original space Hulk uh, came out shortly after Aliens, and its game design is inspired by the game Aliens. Right. So, you know, you, you have one player playing the Marines and another player playing the Gene Stealers. And this is another thing. I'm playing the Marine campaign. There apparently is a Gene Stealer campaign in this game. I just haven't started it yet. And they both play a little bit differently. And the main thing about the Gene Stealers is the Gene Stealers don't start out moving Gene Stealers across the map. You start out moving radar blips. So it really captures that, oh my God, they're right on top of us feeling from aliens. And you move the radar blips around and a radar blip can represent up to three or as little as zero gene stealers. I like that. Wow. So it kind of keeps you on your toes. Now with, uh, with the Space Hulk game, you mentioned it has, it features a lot of what's in the expansions for the board game. Mm-hmm. Um, can you play this multiplayer? Is it just single player? Oh, no, there is, there is a, uh, there is multiplayer, uh, through, uh, the one I have is for, for the Xbox one. So there is multiplayer through, through Xbox. Uh, I, I'm assuming there's also local network play, but we only have the one Xbox. So I, I have sure. not had a chance to actually do the multiplayer myself. So and, and does it take a long time to, to play a, a level? Uh, some of the scenarios are some of the, most of the scenarios are pretty quick. If it's not a very difficult or mission critical scenario, you can uh, play through a whole scenario in less than half an hour, which is nice. So it's I found that unless you are at the point where you have one of those mandatory missions, it's a great game that you can just sort of sit down and play for twenty to thirty minutes and have a good time, and then and then leave. Got it. Very cool. It's, it's much more casual than most 40k video games I've ever played. Yeah, I mean that's sort of nice. That's the thing I always wonder with these. Like, I, I like playing board games, but sometimes the rule set can be quite intimidating. And uh, I mean, some of these can take like all day to play one round, so that's nice. It's a bit quicker. 
Um, do you think like the voice acting is cheesy or the graphics okay for what it's trying to do? The, the graphics, it's it's kind of it's it's strange. Like when I I, I like the graphics, it's very charming because they they have really tried to make things. I either they they've tried to make things honestly look like they might look on a really good tabletop. So for instance, parts of the Space Hulk are made of old orc wrecks, and they really, really try to make it look the way orc terrain looks in in various versions of tabletop Warhammer, um, which looks cheesy, but it's very deliberate cheesiness, like in that sense. So I I personally like the level of the level of detail and the way things look, even when they look kind of silly. Uh, as for the as for the voice acting, everybody sounds like they're like they're either doing a David Warner impression or a Tim Curry impression. I might have to play it for that alone. That's funny. In fact, I even had to look up the Blood Angel Sergeant to find out if he was Tim Curry or not. He is not Tim Curry. <laughs> okay, I mean it's not out of the question. He's he's done a lot of work for video games, so. Watch out for the space aliens. I don't know. That was a bad Alan Rickman. What about I'm Gabriel Knight. I don't want to touch that. Yeah. So, um, I've been playing this. Um, you know, I haven't been playing a whole lot recently, but one game I'm really looking forward to that comes out in a few weeks that I'll talk that I've been reading all the preview information I can get my hands on. Is this one called Star Wars Squadrons? Have you heard about this? Yes, I have heard about it. I've seen yeah. some I've seen some gameplay uh-huh. footage from it. So, like the last Star Wars multiplayer game uh, that came out was Star Wars Battlefront 2. Uh, it's the second game with that title, so it's kind of confusing, but it's the more recent one. It had a Starfighter mode that was like a dumbed down kind of X-Wing versus TIE Fighter where you would do five on five teams and, and they even had missions where you had to take out capital ships and stuff. It was pretty fun, but this uh, one, Star Wars Squadrons, is done by the same team that did the Starfighter mode from Battlefront 2, but it has um, a single-player campaign. It also has a few multiplayer modes, Deathmatch, and it has, I think it's, again, five on five, but it has uh, different maps, and, and more importantly, just like X-Wing and TIE Fighter, it has the mechanic where you have to balance your uh, levels between shields, engines, and lasers, hmm. which I think is what makes the X-Wing and TIE Fighter game so good, is that you have to have that kind of strategy in there. And I think this one has more complex physics, and uh, anything you can get in the game is just cosmetics. There's nothing. You can't get an advantage on your ship by um, paying real-life money or by That's grinding. Good. Yeah, and and... Also in this, I think you can, depending on what you want to, how you want to custom your ship, you can pick like a few out of a list of maybe like 30 different upgrades to your ship. And one might be the laser has a wider spread, but it's, it's weaker individually. I mean, so they, they did a lot of really smart uh, design decisions. So I'm very excited for the game because it's mainly, multi, although it has single player campaign that's supposed to be short, um, the multiplayer, they only have five maps, which is kind of disappointing and two modes, but they're, they might be doing more if the game does well. And they're releasing it at forty dollars, and not at the full sixty dollars price point. Um, these kind of space uh, flight sims, or they don't really make them that much anymore. And I enjoy Star Wars, so I'm definitely going to give this one a shot on my uh, PlayStation Four. Um, but it's coming out for PC and PlayStation, and uh, I guess if you have a PC or whatever, and you can you can even do the crazy. Uh, realistic joystick setup we have two different joysticks or it's like a flight yoke 
all that <laughs> all that crazy stuff. And and it supports VR as well, which I imagine would be fun. Um, not that I have that stuff, but it's always nice to dream. Uh, so I mean, yeah, I think Star Wars Squadrons. I'm looking forward to. They released a cool. It looks like a clip from a cutscene of the single player campaign, but it has it's from the point of view of the Empire, and I guess the the single player campaign it switches back and forth between Rebel and Empire uh, with a story that kind of like meets in the middle at some point. Hmm. So um, I'm looking forward to that, and I've played a little bit of what the hell is this game called? This game has such a generic name. Let me look it up for us. Adventure Quest. Did you leave the room? Sorry, I had it muted. I need to stop doing that. I was, I was, I was confused. Like I thought you had yeah. like walked out. <laughs> no, uh, here it is. It's called Fall Guys Ultimate Knockout. Oh yeah, I haven't played that, but I've seen some people play it. It's it, it's pretty unique. It's kind of like you're doing like a game show, kind of. It so imagine like a cartoon version of American Ninja Warrior, but like it it has kind of shitty physics and bad controls on purpose. But you start, I think, with up to like <laughs> sixty. It might be 64 players. It's some weird number of players going all at once. And they look like these kind of weeble wobble guys. And you can get cosmetic things either with real money or with grinding for points in the game. And it randomizes what level you do each time. But like in the first round, like at least a third of the people get knocked out. Like it's pretty difficult. And skill is part of it. There's a lot of online cheating going on with it, unfortunately. But they plan to update it with different... They just did a, a halfway through season one update that kind of remixed some of the levels. So they, they plan to freshen it up with new content. Season two is going to be medieval themed. But it it, it reminds me a bit of that old show Double Dare, I think, with the, some of the wacky stuff going on. And it's cute. It's fun. Um, I don't think it's terribly expensive. It was for free on PS Plus for August. Um, but it's called Fall Guys Ultimate Knockout. And has kind of a Japanese game show aesthetic to it. Uh, so... It's um, it's it's been very popular. A lot of people have streamed it lately. It, it's kind of fun to watch people stream this one because there's people cursing loudly as their cute little character kind of falls <laughs> off the thing. I mean, there's a level I really like that's sort of uh, like you're on you're you're jumping across these planks and it's a bit like a seesaw, and so you can deliberately like kind of troll other people. You can pick them up and drop them off ledges if you want, oh. or you can jump on top of people, or you and shove them in the way it's just uh yeah just watch footage to see if it's your kind of thing but it's it, it's kind of unique i haven't seen anything quite like this before and we'll see how long it sticks around for because it's multiplayer only so yeah that's it for this episode of uh zero quest 2 adventure game is human next time <laughs> we got a biggie on the list this one is a game that's quite something this is uh Sierra sold this for $100 at the time. This was on 10 diskettes. Time zone. Here we go. From Roberta Williams again as the designer. So she hasn't, we haven't had her do something since Wizard and the Princess a few episodes ago. And this is the next to last of these high res adventures, thank God. (laughs) After time zone is the Dark Crystal. I I really like Roberta Williams as a designer, though. I'm looking forward to playing this one. 
Oh, oh yeah. And I should mention on um, Netflix, they have that high score documentary. Mm-hmm. On one of the episodes, they, they talked to Ken Williams and Roberta Williams. And Roberta Williams, they have her on her dining room table kind of show her what she does to design an adventure game. Oh, cool. And to watch her do that and talk about it is really neat. I gotta watch that. Yeah, it's um I didn't learn a whole lot from it, but I think it's well made in that they have the uh they talk to a lot of the old school people that are still alive, like Richard Garriott. It, it goes it starts with things like uh Space Invaders on the Atari, and it goes all the way up to Mortal Kombat and Street Fighter Two to the early nineties. So that's kind of the length of time it covers. So until next time, uh, you know, uh, leave us a good review for the podcast feed or under SequelCast You and Friends on the uh, Apple Podcast uh, app. Um, go to SequelCastU.com to check out past episodes. For um, Sierra Quest to Adventure Game and Seaman, this is Matt. And this is Thresher. Saying. Throw magic dust in his eyes. Would you like to bow? You should probably bow. (laughs) Are you trying to bribe the guard?